Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we're still at Hoppin' Brew School, or I should say Denny's still at Hoppin' Brew School. That's right. Where we're going to be talking with folks at YCH about the changes that have happened now to the whole notion of survivables. Remember, survivables is new science, so it's not static, it's changing, and so there's new things to learn. But before we do that, or do any of the other fun stuff we got lined up, take a listen to this message about the people who make the show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Welcome back. And as always, we're going to have some announcements to get going here. And Drew's going to tell you about the new episode of The Brew Files. Yeah, if you haven't checked your podcast feed or the website, well, you may have missed it, but the last episode of The Brew Files was a semi-philosophical discussion about what makes an award-winning homebrew and whether or not you should be brewing an American wheat beer, an American light lager, and how to go about it. Yeah, boy, especially how to go about it. Uh, Caleb has some great info for you, uh, both in terms of the brewing and in terms of the philosophy that goes with brewing. So. Check Absolutely. It out. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's called the Pongo Fund, and it's like a, a food bank for pets. Uh, if people are having trouble feeding their pets, the Pongo Fund can help them out. I mean, you know, how cool is that? So uh, go to experimentalbrew.com, click the Patreon link, show us a few bucks that we can pass along to them. In terms of our previous charities, we wanted to fill you in on what's going on. Uh, Project Freedom Ride, which was back in the second half of 21, ended up getting $1,150 from you guys. Remember, they're the organization that flies pets from uh, a place where they may be killed up to a place where they can get new homes with great people. And then the other one that we uh, did was Canines for Warriors, who trains rescue dogs to uh, be companions for injured vets. And we ended up throwing them $1,120, thanks to you guys. So, again, thank you for helping us help these people out. Go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and you can help us with the Pongo Fund right now. Absolutely. And now it's time for your feedback. feedback. There we go. 
It's time for your feedback. Our one piece of feedback this week comes from Bill Polskoy about naming things. And Denny, I think this one's right up your alley. He says, I have not named any oh, of yeah. my equipment, but I have named one of my beers with reference to a well-known musician for our sold farts. The beer was Chunga's Revenge. Yes, yes. And I used, somewhat appropriately, right? Zappa Hops. Yeah. Um, that's about as creative as I can get. Well. Hey, Bill, you you made my day, buddy. I still remember the album cover with the dancing vacuum cleaner on it. Yeah, so, you know, it's funny. Sierra Nevada was pushing Zappa Hops a couple of years back. Do you remember that? Like, yeah, yeah, they, they, they were, were really working on them, and, and I don't think I ever had a chance to to use them. And there was somebody who made a whole Zappa series, oh, well, and I don't think it no, was no, no, no. The, the the Zappa series of beers was from Lagunitas until oh, until yeah, there was right. like a, a disagreement with the Zappa's estate and all that sort of went screwball. Yeah, man, but boy, what great cans! I still have the Reuben and the Jets can prominently displayed. There you go. But yeah, thank you. Thank you, Bill. And of course, if you have any other sort of crazy things that you've named in terms of the brewery, the beer, the equipment, the floating visions that occur in front of your face when you're thinking about a beer, let us know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Okay, how about we head over to the pub and have a beer now? That sounds good to me. We're going to take a quick break here and we'll meet you in the pub when we get back. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. The American Homebrewers Association invites you to celebrate the 24th annual Learn to Homebrew Day on Saturday, November 5th. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to download the official recipe for a small batch hoppy amber ale. Find a homebrew supply shop and dust off your homebrewing skills with how-to videos. Plus, you'll get a promo code for $5 off an annual AHA membership when you make a pledge to participate in Learn to Homebrew Day. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to get $5 off when you make the Big Brew Pledge by November 8th, 2022. The quintessential mark of a summer beer, hands down, is easy drinking. So gear up with Y-Yeast's latest seasonal release, Session Season, featuring 1087 Y-Yeast Bohemian Ale Blend, 1768 English Special Bitter, and the homebrewing favorite 3463 Forbidden Fruit. These strains are selected to highlight a wide variety of styles in the 2-5% alcohol range. Go ahead, craft your crushable lawnmower beer, a classic pub bitter, or a wit to pair with beer-battered fish tacos on the patio. Your next summer brew can be as clean or sophisticated as the occasion calls for without the demanding OG or ABV. Head over to whyeastlab.com for our latest advice on brewing session beers and to find out which styles pair best with these strains. Available now through the end of September. New Yeast apparel and goods are also available at store.whyeastlab.com. Let's get brewing.
welcome to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere in cyberspace. And we're having a couple beers, and Drew, what do you got there today? Well, very appropriately with one of the things that we're about to discuss, I am having a Two Coast, which is a little local brewery here in L.A., Two Coast St. Father Fest beer. And Two Coast is founded by two gentlemen from Hamburg, and they're very proud of being from Hamburg. They worked in the newspaper industry over there. They came over to the U- U.S. Uh, Jan got into uh, home brewing, and then he went to German brewing school. And they're trying to carve out a sort of a German brewing niche here in Los Angeles, uh, them and Integrin. And I tried a bunch of their beers. They, they even have a cream ale, oddly enough, which I thought was funny. Wow. Uh, but the St. Father Fest beer is just, you know, brand new because it's that time of year. And it's rich, it's warm, it's mouth-enveloping, and it gets the heck out of the way, which really does make you just want to have a whole dang mug of it. Wow, that's killer, man. I have yet to get any Fest beer or Oktoberfest this year. Uh, I just have not been any place where I could pick some up. I hope to rectify that situation very soon. Uh, I, I don't generally like buy a lot of it because it's not something Paula enjoys, but it's something that i got to at least check out every year. And uh, my beer today is about as far as you can get from that. I'm having a PBR. <laughs> yep, good old Pabst Blue Ribbon. Remember when I was talking to my friend Andre uh, a few episodes back, and I mentioned that uh, kind of as a joke, he brought me some. Well, what the heck? I was digging around in the beer fridge, and I pulled one out. And, you know, and I got to admit, you know, again, this is all based on my own tastes. This is, this is not an objective review. Uh, for what it is, it's not bad. You know, it, it's, there's some malt flavor there. Um, it's still a little sweet for my tastes. Uh, but you know, what the heck? I may not be going out and buying more of it, but I didn't pour it out. Hey, you probably had beer made, uh, right near me. Well, that that could very well be, huh? You know. Yeah, more than, more than likely. I guess when uh, the best thing you can say about a beer is I didn't pour it out. That's kind of like damning with faint praise, huh? Yeah, but I mean, look, I mean, remember pour, uh, PBR and Coors Banquet, for instance, they both serve their their purposes when it's super dang hot out, like it's is right now here, uh, and you just really want something cold and crisp. Uh, you know, it sometimes it's just hard to beat a PBR or a Coors. Give me a uh, give me a German pills. Oh yeah, I know, but something. Come on, <laughs> uh, yeah. Sometimes sometimes you don't want to think about your beer too much. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Well, <laughs> that's. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Indeed. All right. Well, now time to get into a couple of uh, stories that that we're seeing out there. Uh, as I mentioned, all of my feeds are now turning to fest beer season. It's like to me, this is like the one time of year. When brewers finally get to go back to the bosses and say, hey, can I make something malty? And actually end up making it because, of course, all the breweries out there go, you know, it'd be great. Let's have an Oktoberfest. Let's bring people in and and Oktoberfest them up. So we need a fest beer. And one of the other things I will say about it is what I'm seeing now is I am seeing way more fest beer as opposed to the Mertzen beer, which, of course, always was sold here in the U.S. as Oktoberfest. And so kind of think Meritzen, deep amberish thing, fest beer, sort of a hellas on steroids, right? Uh, and yeah. for years, it always used to be that you could not, 
Well, I mean, uh, Spaten, for instance, couldn't sell Fest beer here because everybody who'd want to drink Oktoberfest beer associated it with the Meritzen, that darker, uh, darker browner beer. But for whatever reason, over about the past five years or so, maybe it has something to do with modern craft breweries being color shy, shall we say? Fest beer is picking up speed. It's becoming popular. And now actually I'm seeing more Fest beers here than I am seeing Meritzen's. And I really like it. Now, you were saying, Denny, uh, before we started recording, that uh, what's going on, like uh, Sam Adams? Well, I have seen uh, a person whose tastes I really respect. So they've tried 13 or 14 different uh, Oktoberfests, Fest beers, Martins, whatever. And he prefers uh, Sam Adams this year over anything else that he's had. And, you know... If some people had said that, I would just kind of laugh it off, but uh, I have a lot of respect for this guy's taste, so what the heck, uh, might be worth looking at. Yeah, time to do some research, as they say, and if you want to do some research of your own, at least about how to build one of these, we recommend that you go back and you listen to episode 58, that was a while ago, episode 58 of The Brew Files, which is all about the difference between Meritzen and Fesbier and how to brew both of them. So... It's going to be too late for you to be able to make one for this year's Oktoberfest, but here's a dirty little secret. They drink good the rest of the year, too. <laughs> That's right, man. All right. And then you know that we've been, uh, well, if you've been listening to the show for any period of time, you know that we're being you know, kind of fascinated by and tracking the non-alcoholic and low-alcohol mark. There's been some recent news that's come out, uh, you know, the Nielsen ratings. Yes, Nielsen actually tracks beer sales, too. Uh, and they've been talking about while a lot of other alcohol categories, so craft beer, regular American domestic beer, imports and all that, and even seltzers are kind of falling off a little bit the or slowing down uh, rapidly, non-alcoholic is actually, you know, climbing still. It's still going up. In fact, they saw a 35% increase over last year in terms of sales. Now, keep in mind, the non-alcohol market is still much, much smaller than the than the traditional beer market. You know, I think the current market market income is around somewhere around four hundred million dollars, but it's still growing and growing and growing. So that's kind of interesting to me to see. The other thing that was interesting was it was it was craft beer and brewing. I think released a chart, like a really cool infographic, showing like where breweries were on the top fifty. Uh, Brewers Association Craft Breweries of America, and like over, I think it was what a decade, right? Yeah. And you know, it was done like very much like it looked like somebody's fancy subway map. And in the most recent year, suddenly up at I think it was number twenty-seven on the list for the first time, Athletic. Athletic just suddenly zoomed in and in, into the market and like, pink, here we go. We are now the twenty-seventh largest craft brewery in America, as defined by the Brewers Association. Wow, that is truly amazing for somebody who is so new to the scene relatively and makes some the type of beer that people don't really think of a lot. I know, right? And so they, uh, now keep in mind, as I said, as we've talked about before, Athletic is now bi-coastal. So, you know, they got their brewery in Connecticut. They got one down in San Diego. To me, the fact that they could go from not even being in that top 50 to being in the top, almost top 25, yeah, is really amazing to see. And 
uh, like I said, I've had so, I've had a number of these non-alcoholic beers over the past year since I've been having all all my stomach problems, uh, and they are markedly markedly better than they have ever been in the past. Uh, Heineken Zero is still actually the category leader by far and away, and then I think it's like Budweiser Zero, Athletic, and a bunch of others are all kind of glommed together in the same area, but they're they're all like half of the sales of Heineken Zero. So I will also say the Guinness Zero is very nice. So just keep that in mind. It's interesting to see where that growth is going and where it's going to take us. Yeah, I've been looking for the uh, Deschutes uh, non-alcoholic Black Butte Porter, and I have not found it yet. But I'm I'm not giving up looking for it because that is supposed to be one of the best non-alcoholic beers around. Yeah, and I'm trying to find the Sierra Nevada version of the uh, Lagunitas Hop Refresher because they, they have a hoppy seltzer as well. Because uh, I'm finding that I like those when it's really nice and hot out. Interesting to see. I actually think it's an encouraging trend, and we'll just have to see where it keeps going. Yep, I agree completely, man. And if you're one of those people out there who makes fun of non-alcoholic beers, just stop that right now. Yeah, I mean, look, this stuff now is a far crying away better than it was in the days of Caliber and Buckler and all those, right? Uh, now. Well, I mean, I see, I see a lot of comments about, what's the point? It's like, you know, man, if, if that's the way you feel, that's fine. But just don't get on other people who do want to have something that uh, is, is refreshing and tasty, but without alcohol. Yep. Yeah, I still haven't found an IPA that, to me, delivers the, the perfect sort of IPA experience. Uh, yeah, the athletic, the athletic is about the best one I've found so far, and it's not quite there. Yep. But, I mean, look, compared to where we were Five years ago? Oh, man. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. There you, there are some really good choices out there if you want to go for a non-alcoholic beer. And finally, we're going to leave you with something to read before we move on from the pub. Uh, our good friend and longtime uh, compatriot in the, in the beer writing world, uh, Chris Colby, has relaunched his website. And for years, he had a website that was, what was it? The Beer and Wine Journal, right? Um, but now... He's decided that since the, that site's been open for, I think, about a decade, and he had a total of five winemaking articles, that was the comment I saw from him, he decided that that was no longer an accurate branding for the site. And instead, because he's now absolutely obsessed with gardening, it's now the Beer and Gardening Journal. And you can go and find all of his old articles, along with a bunch of new ones, and Chris has been really sort of doing a lot of work in terms of trying to figure out plants that will grow in his area, uh, how to raise and sort of encourage monarchs uh, growth, you know, because he's right in that migration path. Uh, all that stuff will be cataloged at beerandgardeningjournal.com. Yeah, and, you know, Chris has a huge scientific background, and uh, apparently this is going to be pretty science-heavy, so if you're into that kind of thing, you definitely want to be reading this. Absolutely. So, I want to finish my fest beer. You need to finish your PBR, and then we yeah, need to go I'll, over to the brewery. dump it out. No. <laughs> okay. Let's get out of here, go over to the brewery, and talk about brewing our own and what we've been doing. We're going to be back after these messages. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3,300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grainfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grainfather.com. Welcome to the brewery, everybody. There's gleaming stainless steel. There's bubbling fermenters. There's Drew doing something weird. Who knows what? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he's going to kick it off by talking about some new yeasts. Well, not so much new yeast, but, you know, the bootleg biology has been out there for a while. Jeff Mello over there in Tennessee. And he's been doing a lot of w- interesting work. He's been working with a lot of breweries like Rare Barrel, uh, Jester King, uh, Black Project, the, which was the brewery that we talked about in the last episode that closed down just uh, sort of suddenly. And not only in terms of sour mixed culture type things, but also in terms of other yeast strains that we don't normally see. Now, the only problem is that since uh, Bootleg is a tiny company, they don't always have homebrew cultures available or homebrew size cultures, shall we say. And so three times a year, they open up the homebrew side of the house and say, hey, we're we're selling through, and right now is the fall time to sell. They've got some new things in there, like two new uh, lager strains, like a Czech unpasteurized lager and a Franconian killer lager. Uh, they've got some bringing back some classics, like the Milk the Funk Pittsburgh, a.k.a. Funkburg Mega Blend that they had, all of their brewery series, their local series, and all of their sorts of things that you can, you can really get your legs around. And... I decided I was going to go ahead and get a couple of things. No huge surprise. They're all somewhat Saison related. 
<laughs> You're kidding. Yep. And so I got uh, I got some of the Saison Parfait, like a perfect season, which to me is actually a really fantastic uh, pitch. And then also got the Jester King uh, sort of mixed culture because Jester King makes some really wonderful low-gravity, low-alcohol farmhouse beers. Uh, that I I really want to try and tackle and understand how the, how those work, and so I think this will be a really nice blend to start with, and also just to throw it out there, uh, Mike Tonsmeer's uh, blend, the Mad Fermentationist blend. So I got those three packs coming to me. They'll be fun to play with, and I'm looking forward to it. But in the meanwhile, if you want to get in on the Humber sale right now, because remember you won't be able to get until next year again, go to bootlegbiology.com. And you'll be able to go into the homebrew section and buy some yeast strains from them. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's just always kind of nice to try something different or, in the case of the Saison Parfait, to return to it. Because that was, it's just really, really good. Also kind of really makes me think I need to be Johnny on the spot and save some of it since I won't be able to get get it, you know, during the rest of the year. You know, maybe what I'll do is I'll follow Caleb's direction and actually become, you know, sort of more scheduled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. For those of you who haven't listened to the last episode of the main show, Caleb is uh, very coordinated. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. He's much more organized than I can ever hope to be. Yep. Now, the other thing I wanted to put out there is, you all know that I've got the brewery up and running now. Uh, I'm not about to, I haven't gone and actually uh, brewed yet, but I am getting there and I think I'm going to brew tomorrow. So just beforehand, what I decided I needed to do was because I've got the new system, the G40, and they recommend you clean it before you actually use it to brew. Go figure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I figured I'd do a water test, right? Get used to the controls, figure out how to make it work, you know, do all the fun stuff I wanted to do. And since I'm new to the world of 220 brewing, I also wanted to see what would happen if I took my G30, aka Click, which is a 120-volt system, and put it up in a foot race up against Clack, my G40, which is 220 volts. Now, this is not going to. The results of this are not going to shock anybody. This is exactly what you'd expect. Um, well, and it's not. It's not just the voltage. The entire heating element in the G40 is different. Yep. It's a much bigger surface area. So these are these are mainly data points, not a oh, comparison. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. But I wanted to see what would happen. So I yeah. filled both the units with water, six gallons each. Exact same uh, water out of my tap at a nice, balmy 82 degrees Fahrenheit, a.k.a. 28 degrees Celsius. And yeah, that's my tap temperature here right now during summer, which tells you why I have to go through extra hoops in order to get my beer cool enough. Um, and turn them on. Put them both onto 100, 100% heating power and said, let's see how fast these things will get to a boil. And in a completely shocking result, Absolutely shocking. <laughs> the G40 at 220 volts absolutely pants the G30 uh, in terms Jeez. of speed. Right? And what actually really surprised me was by exactly how much. And to give you an idea, the G40 got up to a boil in 56 minutes. Now, by the way, this was no lid. Neither of these units had a lid on it during this time. Mm -hmm. So 56 minutes to get the G40 from 82 degrees Fahrenheit up to a boil Compared to, and this is what I actually found shocking, two hours and 45 minutes with the G30. <laughs> so now keep in mind, 
in actual brewing time, like when you're actually brewing with these things, you're not going from 82 degrees, right? You'd be coming up from like 150, 160 area to a boil. So it's going to be much faster to get to a boil afterwards. But I did think it was just interesting because, I mean, that way I could just keep it even. Um, but then what do you think? Like 56 minutes versus two hours and 45. I would, I would not have been surprised if it had been like an hour and two hours, but to almost go from an hour to nearly three really did actually surprise me. Yeah, well, you know what? It's been so long since I've used my 110 grandfather. I can't even remember, but, um, you know, what can I say? It is what it is, right? Well, that's also the reason why a lot of times when I was brewing with the, the G30, I'd use, I'd use a hot rod heat stick, which is now hanging up in the back of the brewery and probably give that away to somebody at some point. Um, <laughs> but the other thing I also thought was interesting because, you know, it's rare to be able to actually see all the way down to the bottom of the boil kettle when we're brewing beer for reasons that should be obvious. Um, one of the things I got to see was actually how the boil forms. Now, if you've ever done this before, obviously the boil will happen around where the heating elements are. Duh. Yeah, but right. The G40 now has a whole bottom plate assembly on it, where the G30 had this sort of like little filter designed to strain out hops and all that sort of fun stuff. The G40 takes advantage of the big flat bottom that it has and kind of puts a false bottom over the bottom of the kettle. And the... That whole perforated system, which is actually double sealed and kind of very cool, sits down really well. What I thought was really interesting to watch was how the bubbles formed and how this cavitation formed in the in the surface. And it was all around the edges of that plate. So the G30, because of the open bottom design, really did cavitate right up off the, the where the heating element is. But the G40 pushes it out to the around the edges of the plate and through the uh, well through the little uh, holes in the sides of the plate. And maybe because of the angle I had the G40 on or something else about the particular setup I've got, or maybe something about where the elements really are on the G40, I noticed this weird, strong cavitation out at the edges, particularly along one corner of that plate or one segment of that plate. And so it was just kind of interesting to see because we don't normally get to see a boil at the base in a beer kettle. And beyond being curiosity to see it acts it has absolutely no impact on the performance of the unit. So yeah. don't think that just because Drew saw that, that you don't want to get one because that's weird. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not putting that out there to say this is a defect and blah, blah, blah. I'm saying that was, oh, that's interesting because that's what I do. I go, oh, that's interesting. Um, so can't wait. G40, hopefully tomorrow, and then I'll come back and I'll tell you all how well it worked. Uh, the other thing is, talked about those bootleg biology things I got in order to make the mild cream saison, I needed to get some more corn malt from sugar Creek. And while I was buying stuff from sugar Creek, I figured, well, I'm already paying for shipping. So let's throw some extra stuff in there. You know, and I got their pills or malt that I'm going to play with. And I got a bunch of the, the Boone County white corn. I also decided, Ooh, they've got some interesting fun oats and you know, me and oats. And I had never had these before, but they're Corinthian, I think, or Carthinian smoked oats, which are four germinated oats dried over cherry wood. And the, the notes here on the Sugar Creek site say that oats were often used when the barley crop was insufficient across Europe and that uh, there was a raw ale made with this malt that prevailed well into the 19th century. Uh, now, I'm really curious to see 
how this is going to work out. I'm going to probably drag uh, Caleb back on the show so he can talk to me about them. But I will tell you when the box arrived with those three bags of malt, you know, the corn malt, the pilsner malt, and these malted oats. Uh, wow. The smoke rolling off that bag. <laughs> I mean, it, to the point where I actually had to put the bag over in the other corner of the brewery just because I was worried that maybe I needed to give the malt a little bit of time to gas out and hopefully not have any smoke in it, you know, in terms of my Pilsner and my corn malt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's uh, that's really intense. Yeah, and I Caleb sells these things in 10-pound bags, right? And so I now have 10 pounds of smoked oats that, that I have to figure out some good uses for. Uh, yes, obviously mild and, and porters and all that sort of fun stuff. Uh, but when I asked Caleb about usage rates he was like start small very small <laughs> yeah i'll bet i'll bet man which means i'm going to have now 10 pounds of these oats and if a batch of beer is going to use like a quarter of a pound i might be set for the next decade or so <laughs> i would say you need to find some people in your club who uh, want to use some oh yeah absolutely uh, no that's that's totally what's going to happen but <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, that was something else that I got on my hands-on that I thought was going to be fun. I wanted to let everybody know that that's an ingredient that exists. But from ingredients that exist to ideas that will now be made into reality. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I love a beer called Ublan Schuf. It's uh, kind of like an IPA version of, of uh, Le Schuf. Uh, you don't see it around here very much. As a matter of fact, I haven't seen it here in the U.S. for years. Uh, it was widely available when we were in Belgium, for which my wife was exceptionally grateful, being the kind of person who prefers IPA to anything else in the world. And I've made a couple stabs at uh, making it uh, based on the information I could find and gotten kind of into the ballpark, but not not as close as I would like to be. Uh, Cal Walner, who has a great website called The Electric Brewery, uh, put up a recipe that I just happened to stumble across. And this guy does meticulous research uh, on the recipes, the, uh, the things behind them, how they came about, uh, even going so far as to include a water profile with the recipe. And his recipe looks so great and so likely to succeed that that's going to be my next brew for sure. Uh, with modifications. With modifications? Yeah. I doubt he was using Hannah. Oh, no, 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 no. But he doesn't specify the type of malt, but I have some of the crisp uh, Hannah pills malt around, which is supposed to be an exceptionally flavorful malt. So, uh, and you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a go and see what happens. I'll be picking up all the ingredients for it, uh, the yeast and the hops that I don't have on hand in the next couple days. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, again, his website is called the electric brewery and he has some very, very snazzy equipment there. And I believe he sells some of it also, Ooh. uh, so go go check it out. Check out his recipes. Check out his brewery. It is really, really fascinating, and the guy really does seem to know what he's talking about. And he's a great guy, too. Yeah, well, and I was going to say, I know another uh, – I mean, I know a number of humbers who have used his site to sort of build up their own versions of his brewery. It's, it is very snazzy. Um, yeah, it is. I do, uh, I do think it's interesting that looking at that, Hana and beet sugar – 
you know, like 84 to 16%. I mean, it's almost, right. it's almost straight up a, a triple bill. Yeah, it, it is just not quite as strong. I mean, it comes in at like 1076, something, something in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which if it ferments all the way down could definitely be triple strength. And he got, he got some like incredible attenuation, like 93% or something like that. So <laughs> I have a, a real uh, goal to shoot for there. I'll be going ahead and doing pretty much everything he did, the same step mash and everything. Uh, he uh, recommends dry hopping for four or five days at 68. Uh, even though I've gone pretty much to cold dry hopping, I, I'm going to do what he did because I want to find out. And, you know, you've heard me say this before, especially when somebody asked me about changing one of my recipes. I always say, brew it the way it is first, find out what it is, and then if you want to change anything, go for there. And that's the... Uh, I figure that I owe other people that's that same uh, philosophy. So I'm going to brew this beer exactly like Cal brewed it, see what happens. And that way, if it doesn't turn out well, I can blame it on him, right? Absolutely. Or, you know, the, the person <laughs> running the controls. Um, but I will say that I, I remember when uh, Ublon Schiff came out, it was, it was, I think, the first time I'd ever had a Belgian beer that really – felt like it was super hoppy and not super grassy. Uh, yeah, right. And, and again, I, I think that's because it's a combination of CTZ and, and what, Amarillo and Amarillo, Zots. and there's some Zots, right, yeah, yeah. Interesting thing, uh, he relates a story that he got from them about how when they first brewed it, they uh, thought, oh, my God, this beer is hoppy. And they sent some over to the United States and people in the United States, you know, the, the brewers and people that they tested with said, this beer is not nearly hoppy enough. So they made one with twice as much and one with three times as much. And obviously the people in the United States picked the ones with three times as much bitterness and uh, flavoring hops. So that's the way it ended up. And uh, that's the version that I'm going to be brewing. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and big surprise that the Americans went more. <laughs> yeah. And again, if you go to his website and read the story behind this recipe, uh, he, he tells it all. And it's, it's, it's really interesting and fascinating. And I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Enough talking about what we've been brewing. We're going to head over to the lounge and talk to a couple people from Yakima Chief Hops about their latest research into survivables. So stick around. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. 
Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer. All right, and welcome back, everybody. Thank you for listening to those messages. As always, remind the people that you hear from that you heard about them here on this show. We are now in the comfy chairs, the comfy jackets, the comfy beer glasses. It is time for us to lounge. Denny, who are we lounging with today? We're lounging with a couple of great people from Yakima Chief Hops. Spencer Tilkemeyer is the uh, North American sales director, and Pat Jensen is the head of R&D at Yakima Chief Hops. We have talked to Spencer especially before about the survivables theory uh, with the hops, uh, you know, what compounds come through in the hops when you use them at different times, and how you can use that information to put together different combos of hops to go in your beer so that you're getting like a, a wider range of components from the hops in the beer instead of just loading up on one thing. They've done a lot more research into it. They've kind of uh, categorized things, and Pat especially has come up with some cute little rhymes to help you remember what's what. So sit back. Grab yourself a beer unless you're driving and listen to this conversation about new research in survivables. I'm sitting here today with Spencer Tielkemeyer, who is the Director of North American Sales for Yakima Chief Hops, and Pat Jensen, who's the Director of R&D here at Yakima Chief. Uh, thank you so much, guys, for coming in today to talk to me. Glad to be here. Yeah. So... You you gave a talk yesterday on survivables in hops, and Spencer, we've had you on before talking about that, but you guys got into it a little bit further, and uh, Pat showed that he's a poet when it comes to this stuff, too, so... Uh, <laughs> oh, it's an underutilized skill. Yeah, right. So, so either, one, this is either one of you guys, why don't you tell people a little bit about what survivables are and what good it does to know about them? Well, how I just described survivables and how the, like the term kind of probably came about was you're just trying to talk about what compounds, uh, aromatically speaking, are beer soluble. Mm-hmm. And so the kind of you kind of get into the explanation of solubility, what's hydrophobic, hydrophilic, uh, what's polar, nonpolar that will have affinity for water. But it was a lot easier to say these survive the brewing process. <laughs> Right. And when when you say survive the brewing process, are you talking about like at any stage in the brewing process? We mean that in general, they have a higher tendency to survive than a lot of the things that have historically been present on a like a certificate of analysis, for example. Uh-huh. So they have a higher tendency to be able to stand up to heat or fermentation, yeast flocculation, all these things that are sort of antagonistic to hop aroma um, and have a tendency to either gas them off or drag them out. These are the compounds that we regularly see showing up in finished beer, and, and that leads us to believe that they are most commonly uh, the ones that are going to have the ability to survive into into finished beer. So, therefore, we're keenly interested in working backwards and saying, 
how can we maximize those then? How can we look at hops in that lens and use hops that are going to maximize that that throughput into the finished product? Right. And I know shortly after you came out with your survivables booklet, I, I used that and went through my hop freezer and put together an IPA based on the principles in there, you know, use this with this at this point. And I swear to God, that's one of the best IPAs that I've ever made in my life. It's <laughs> great to hear. Proof of, proof of yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 The, the research paid off, at least for me. That's good. So you guys have like different classes of survivables that you've defined. Uh, why, why don't you like quickly run through what those are, Pat? Well, the first one to remember uh, is terpenes. They don't survive. And if it ends, if it start, if it ends in ene. It doesn't make the scene, so you don't worry about those. So, so, so terpenes don't survive. Terpenes are a very hot thing in the homebrew world these days. I see a lot of people yeah. worrying and about it, it. And, I mean, basically what you got to realize is a terpene is a hydrocarbon, and we basically oil and water doesn't mix very well. Okay. And uh, when we get to other classes, even though you have, like, monoterpene alcohol, so they are actually a terpene. Right. But they end in, they end in all, so you just might get it all. So... <laughs> Anything that has that all to it is like got a hydroxyl group, which right. is OH, which is just like ethanol. So right. it has affinity for water, has affinity for alcohol. So. And, and I see that you, uh, that uh, linalool and geraniol are a couple of the ones that that are are big on there, and and those are ones that I can I can relate to. You know, I've I've used hops high in linalool and geraniol enough that I kind of have an idea of what those are going to do for me. Um, very familiar sense. I think that's one of the reasons that partially why they're so attractive to maximize is they're used in cosmetics, in shampoos and things like that. It's stuff that we're all familiar with and by and large the human nose really enjoys. So maximizing the two of those, linalool and geraniol, is like a, a, an excellent strategy for any brewer just because it's familiar, it's enjoyable, they're, they're lovely, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I, my first experience with linalool, I think, was probably even before I started home brewing because I had like this candle that kept mosquitoes away and it was linalool, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I when I got into brewing and it's like I, I saw linalool there, it's like, damn, it's good for more than just mosquitoes. Oh, much more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tastes good, smells good. <laughs> yeah, really. So, okay, so when we're talking about uh, like – Terpene alcohols, uh, you mentioned that. Let, let's go through some of these. The terpene alcohols, uh, geraniol, linalool we just mentioned. Uh, and then, you know, the, the linalool is especially interesting to me because you say the strong fruity and floral aroma is similar to the aroma of Fruit Loops cereal. And that's a, to me, that's a great description because sometimes I, I get that kind of sense in a beer and I don't know exactly what it is. So if, if I was looking for a big blast of linalool, what hops would I be looking at? Uh, one of my favorites, because it has high linalool, is laurel. Uh, mm-hmm. But I also, I always say this, I like crystal because it's just a, Kind of a hop that really has relatively low alpha acids, beta acids. It's not really known for high essential oil, but it is kind of one of the highest hops with linalool in it, so it's got a good wow. good aroma content. I, I never would have guessed that based on, on having used crystal in the past. It's often overlooked, too. and I think that's one of the beauties of this research that we've done is it's shed light on sort of like the untapped utility of some varieties that we've probably ignored for a little while, right? Right. Crystal is a perfect example of like a, a hop that um, to me makes a wonderful hazy whirlpool hop, right? In hazy IPA production, you're trying to keep your BUs relatively low, mm-hmm. which with modern 
hops is kind of hard, right? right? Simcoe, Citron, Mosaic, they're all in the sure. 12 to 14 range of alpha acid. So you can't, it's hard to hit a, hit your whirlpool with a big charge of any of those hops and not just get it too bitter, right? You're very quickly over that like 30 IBU threshold. Right. Something like Crystal is pretty ch- uh, chock full of, of beer soluble compounds of survivables and linalool. However, it's only like five or 6% a- a- alpha, right? So you can hit your whirlpool with almost double the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, ounces right or pounds right. right and and not be up into that uh, harsh ibu range that you're not looking for but still really jack up the linalool content so there's talus is the same way it's only nine percent alpha eight percent alpha but it's super high in geraniol oh and so really i never realized that yeah it's the highest geraniol hop that we have but relatively low alpha actually so i think of those two i, I just enjoy the fact both as a former brewer but also as somebody who's in the hop world now that we can shed some light on some some of like the untapped utility of some of these varieties that we might have ignored for a while, and crystal and crystal is a good example of that. Right, I've I have really cued into the linalool content of hops because I've started using this this dry hopping technique where you dry hop for a short period of time at a very cold temperature, and the research that I read said that that is especially good for hops that are high in linalool. Mm-hmm. So that's I've been I've been really pushing that in in my dry hopping recently. Has it pretty much good results? Sense. I mean, yeah. it does, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, my my standard dry hopping technique is 48 to 72 hours at 35 degrees. Okay. Uh, and it it works better for me than anything that I've ever tried, you know. Okay. Uh, my wife is a huge IPA fan, so I make a lot of IPAs. So I get a, yeah. a lot of chances <laughs> yeah. to, to experiment nice. with cool. things. Yeah, well, we, really. You give her our thanks then. <laughs> <laughs> I will. And yeah. I'm sure that she'll give you her thanks, yeah. too. <laughs> I, like, I like the short contact time, though, because especially uh, in the homebrew world in particular, we do see that I think brewers think that they're not getting not getting their money's worth out of a hop if they don't leave it in there for a while, right? Yeah. And it's and that's like yeah. and I get it, right? You're tra- they're expensive, so you're trying to get yeah. as much as you can out of them. However, what we see is that pretty much beyond you know like 48, 72 hours, it's really diminishing returns. Yeah. And uh, by and and you're actually risking at that point uptaking some negative flavors even, and so. Limiting the contact time to two or three days, I think, is very wise and, and very appropriate. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, 25 years ago when I started home brewing, you know, it was like, oh, two weeks at room temperature for dry yeah. hops. <laughs> and you go, yeah. where's my hop carry? And you had to, like, convince yourself that it was there, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the next group that you guys start talking about is esters and ketones, something that I am not familiar with at all by, by name. You know, I, I'm yeah. sure that I've dealt with them. So... Pat, why don't you uh, give yeah, us well, background on those? Yeah, esters are actually very common. I mean, they're, yeah. you, they're basically using the food industry. Basically, all your candies have all these esters because they're very fruity. Mm-hmm. And the, my catchphrase on esters is they end in eight, so they got to taste great. <laughs> and that's just because they're all generally fruity, and you'll find them in fruits all the time. So, And, I mean, there's some that are in hops, and there's some that ester, uh the yeast will provide through fermentation, but there's some common ones found in hops. Uh, like I said, uh, I mean, if we want to go through the names, sometimes the names are boring, but get, like isobutyl, isobutyrate, two methyl butyl isobutyrate, isoamyl isobutyrate, they all kind of have that isobutyrate form just because they kind of have the same pathway of formation and they kind of are similar to alpha acids and they kind of originate from the same proteins. So they also are in the lupulin gland so as, as you're as we enhance like lupulin like through the cryo process we're actually enhancing these three esters 
Right, and and I, you know, depending from your graphic here that I'm looking at, like it looks like there's a lot of tropical fruit characters to those. Yes, tropical fruit. Sometimes a banana, a yeah. pineapple. Uh, I think isobutyl isobutyry is more on the stone fruity side, right. kind of the apricot. Like I always say, it's always my favorite fruit because I grew up in Yakima and they seem to grow everywhere. So I've oh, ate really? them all through my <laughs> life. Yeah. So. Yeah. Jesus, there are lots of advantages to living in Yakima. Yeah. <laughs> Fruit's one of them. Definitely the fruit basket. Yeah. I think ester rich hops too. What we've noticed is like if you look at the charts that we provide, and by the way, anybody who's listening and wants to see these, they're downloadable on the website. Um, We have the survivables chart in aggregate, and then we have them broken down by by each compound. But you see a common family that's showing up at the top of all of the esters, right? And it's it's the common four or five, right? And all of those hops have the common tendency in general of of being rather. I would say like luscious and and soft and and having this kind of ethereal soft tropical character. Oh wow, that's a good description. Versus um, hops that are higher in in the monotropin alcohols tend to be kind of brighter and punchier and a little sharper. And so um, it's it's interesting when you kind of look at the common features of some of these hops that are rich in one thing or rich in another. But like Equinot, Eldorado, 586, uh, you know, uh, tend to be really up on all of those esters. Um, and, and all of those hops share this common feature of being really uh, a, a, a very kind of luscious, diverse array of tropical fruits. And so um, very appropriate, I would say, for modern hazy production, right. all of those hops. And, uh, and that's typically, I would say, where we see that ester content shine most appropriately is in uh, sort of fruit-forward modern hazy IPAs and things like that. Now, uh, my big confession to you guys, which none of my listeners will be surprised at at all, is that I'm just like not into hazy beers whatsoever. Not a hazy guy? Not even a little bit. I like I like a firm, crisp bitterness, you sure. know, a, a beer that I can see through and stuff. So am I going to be looking at – totally different hops and usages for, say, a West Coast IPA than I am for a hazy IPA? You know, I think those lines are more blurry than they used to be, right? So I, I am with you. I It took me actually a long while to become a hazy IPA. Obviously, I work in the hop industry now, so I'm glad for what they do for, for hops and the way that we've been able to use hops in the past few right. years. But I love a, like a palate clearing bitterness, you know, yeah. and a crisp beer that has a lot of, uh, a lot of like robust backbone to it. Um, these days, what I, re- what I love is being able to see those modern cultivars making it into a beer that has that framework, right? You have a dry beer with firm bitterness, but it's got 586 in it, right? right. Which is like nice and luscious and tropical, right? Or you've got uh talus in it, which is like really robustly sweet grapefruit, you know? And, uh, that's, uh, not that I don't enjoy a Cascade and Centennial beer. I do very much, but it's, it's really pretty exciting for me as a West Coast IPA fan to see, that style brewed with, um, you know, some really robustly uh, different, you know, modern cultivars that are using, that are high in esters, high in some of these survivable compounds that we're talking about. Um, it produces something that I think is both classic and familiar and new and fresh, right? Right, yeah. And, and uh, my goal, I mean, what I, what I try and shoot for is something that has a crisp, firm bitterness, you know, kind of slaps you in the face, mm-hmm. but then has some of those tropical fruit characteristics coming through at the end in, in the aroma and flavor. To, to me, that's like the perfect synergy between like a West Coast IPA and, and some of these newer styles. Although yeah. I'm, I'm with you, man. It's, I, I, from, from 25 years ago, Cascade and Centennial is always going to be a favorite for me. 
I mean, we were we were five <laughs> miles that way earlier today, smelling Rich Van Horn's Cascades over oh, in Moxie, yeah. and it. I mean, it'll yeah. bring if nothing. I mean, enough, if that doesn't bring you back to the the early you know glory days of when you first started loving beer, I don't know what will. It, it's Cascade wonderful. and Centennial, man. That, yeah. that was like you know what it was twenty five years ago. They so, stuck around for a good reason. I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, right. They're really, yeah, really good. Yeah. Like, there's a reason they've stuck around. It's the same They're reason people are still going to see the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They're still good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then you start talking about sulfur-containing compounds, and I have to admit that for me, with my rudimentary chemistry background, when I hear sulfur, I don't think of fruit. Mm-hmm. I think it stinks. Yeah, rotten eggs. Yeah, exactly, no. exactly. So how do we get how do we get from sulfur to fruity thiols? Well, basically, the tropical fruit industry taught us that because that's a good place to like as chemist or something. As I'm looking at research and stuff, sometimes you don't find the answer in hops or beer. You have to go outside sure. of your zone. And generally, most tropical fruits they have the same analysis capability to find the ripeness and what happens to the fruit as it ripes and they have thiols in them they call them polyfunctional thiols and these are all commonly found in fruits and then they find that these are what brings out a tropical fruit flavor such as three mercaptohexanol which is kind of a grapefruity uh, sometimes a passion fruit some people get on it but when they gets really strong it doesn't smell quite as good as you think it has to be at very low concentrations in order to get those positive notes if you open up a complete standard like we have in the lab you clear out the lab because it's gonna <laughs> smell horrible sometimes horrible body odor like the worst type of body odor you could ever think of i know some of those people yeah. <laughs> no, no names uh, yeah so so then let's start talking about the survivables graph, right? Uh, you say here it answers questions like, what variety should I use? Where in the process should I use it? Which hops work together in combination? How can I use a variety to its maximum effect? And that is really, really true once you start studying this chart. Uh, you know, if for you guys out there who haven't seen it, and like uh, Spencer said, if you haven't seen it, you should download a copy from Yakima Chief Hops. Um Basically, there are colored bars stacked up to show various oils and various hops, and then there's a timeline that shows kind of like where in the brewing process they get used. So the idea, right, is to like say, okay, if I'm going to add hops at this particular point, I may want to take one that has, you know, like, like more of this, and the other one has more of something else, and use them together to get a more complex flavor. Is that the way it's done? Yeah, it's definitely, I would say, like, one of the applications would be to try to, uh, what we know is that definitely these things have synergistic effects, right? So some of the compounds we're talking about, they tend to be better when they're paired with uh, some of the other things we're talking about. And very few, very rarely do they smell as nice or as pleasant in isolation as they would when they're in the full matrix of hop aroma, right? Um, so uh, the, the case I, I would say that you're mentioning is... Um, you know, for example, Laurel and Crystal, we've talked about both right. of those already, right? Both really, really high in linalool, both pretty skewed towards linalool, actually. Like, that's really their dominant component. 
probably not going to make as dynamic a beer to pair those two together because you would just be one one noted towards right. Linalool, like really a pretty non a one dimensional beer. Denny loves that. Well, Denny, you might like it. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. No. Some days, some days I do, some days I don't. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it would make a bad beer, but it probably wouldn't make as dynamic a beer or and as as sort of diverse array of yeah. flavors as if you paired it with something like Talus, Laurel and Talus. One's high in linalool, one's high in geranial, right? And then at that point, you're stacking compounds together and you're balancing them. I mean, the crux of the graph in my mind for brewers is uh, we've every single one of us has dealt with the phenomenon, the frustration over the years of like, I smell the hop, it smells like this, right? I smell the pellets right. or I smell the cones and it smells like this. And then when I put it in beer, it smells like this and the two things don't match up. And it doesn't mean either one's necessarily bad, but... What we're trying to do is sort of bridge that gap and help people uh, make more educated recipe design decisions where they're not just saying like, well, this hop smells good. I'm just going to throw it in and hope for the best. But they could actually say like, based on the survivables chart, this smells good and it looks like it's pretty stacked up with survivables and probably would make a really good Whirlpool hop because it has a lot of stuff that can survive heat and survive fermentation and stuff like that. So I might choose to use it in Whirlpool and, and basically helping you get kind of more bang for your buck out of where and when you, you use different varieties. Right, you know? right. So does does the survivables chart have much relation to early hops, say those that go in like at, at the beginning of the boil or say maybe like up to 30 minutes? Uh, is that going to have much impact? Well, for the most part in your boil, you're still just thinking bittering. Right. So, I mean, there will be some that survive. I mean, uh, I mean, in the early years of like even studying all these compounds, the first one found was in the, in the 70s. And that was linalool, your favorite, right? Yeah, right. So, uh, and that's telling you that that probably survived the brewing process in a lager beer because we only had basically yellow beer. That was mm-hmm. all we had was Budweiser. So that must have been what they studied, right? Essentially. So it tells you that they can even survive even the boil, but to get a better bang for your buck, do late in the boil on the Whirlpool edition. Right. With something chock full of survivable. Yeah, and I like, too, that uh, you have also dry hop suggestions for, like, you know, during fermentation and post-fermentation. I I have never been much of a dry hopping during fermentation kind of guy. Biotransformation scares me because I'm OCD enough. I want to know what's going to happen. It seems yeah. like biotransformation is always kind of a crapshoot. Exactly, man. Roll the dice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, that's what the term actually means. Stuff <laughs> happens. Yes, that's <laughs> all it means. Yeah. So when you eat eat a candy bar, it's biotransforming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> that reminds me of a joke that I won't tell right now. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, I, to me, uh, this chart has just been extremely, extremely valuable, and I'm really hoping that some of the listeners out there will get a hold of it and and start making use of it too. Because, like I was telling you guys, my IPAs just took a quantum leap once I started trying to to make use of these principles there. That's good uh, to hear. We've heard that among commercial brewers too, and and not not all of them have to be like monumental shifts in the way that you design recipes. It could just be a matter of taking the cascade you were using in the Whirlpool and moving it to a post-firm dry hop and then replacing the Whirlpool hop with something that's a little bit more stacked with survivables, right? And thereby getting more out of each of those additions, right? You're getting more retention out of each of those additions. So it's not necessarily that you're having to totally rejigger the the way that you do everything or redesign your brewing process. It's just making smarter varietal uh, dosing decisions at different timings, right? And that's ultimately what we want to equip people with. And... and 
it's not really about amounts either. I've, I've got, I mean, you know, there, there are homebrewers who are just like proud of using like, you know, four pounds of dry hops in a five gallon batch. And, and it's a lot. It, yeah. <laughs> I know, man. <laughs> to, to me, that seems like that can be not only unnecessary, but counterproductive also, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just solubility principle in itself. You, yeah. You, not everything can make it in. <laughs> that's right, man. There's, so there's adding more be a is limit. not necessary. Yeah, you're going to hit a plateau eventually. Yeah, so. right. But but you can say that you've got four pounds of dry hops in your five gallon batch. Yeah, that they're, they're keeping Pat and I. They're keeping yeah. Pat and I employed. I yeah. mean, yeah. You can, yeah. I mean, <laughs> okay, all but, you guys doing that? Keep it up. Yeah, keep these it guys up. will appreciate it. Yeah, but but by and large, yeah, I would say I don't know. Uh, you know, most of the time on the commercial side. We're speaking in pounds per barrel, and I, I don't, I unfortunately have the wherewithal to be able to convert that mentally. And but two to four pounds per barrel to me um, is is really a sweet spot for most modern IPA production. It's, so so yeah. most home brewer batches are going to be about a fifth of that. Yeah. So yeah, we'll have to. Uh, so so a, f- a fifth of say three pounds is you know what roughly like half pound three quarters. Yeah, like that. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I and I think that what we see is that. <clears throat> You can certainly go beyond that, but I, it feels like a sweet spot of where you're you're getting an extremely robust uh, aromatic IPA without without making your yield losses miserable. You know where you're just losing so much due to absorption in the bottom of your car- carboy or your fermenter, uh, but also uh, not just well, I mean crushing your wallet. I don't, you know hops are <laughs> hops are expensive, right? So yeah. it's um, so making the best use of them is is kind of the idea, and that's where survivables can really help people. I think is um, yeah, to not to not feel like they're they're wasting, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. That's, right. that's a big part that, of it. That's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. So okay, so question: What are your personal favorite combinations, and how do you like to see them used? You can go personal first. Personal com- favorite yeah, combination? Yeah, has to be what's at the top of that graph you're looking at, and that's <laughs> cryopop, oh. which is our blend. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, Pat had a Pat, Pat, Pat. That project was a really fun one, and I think the end result we've all become really enamored with, just because it's it's really the fruit of this research is I to be able to put something Cryopop, together. Man. Yeah, I just absolutely love it. If I'm getting ready to make an IPA and I don't have any in my freezer, it's like I'm freaking out. Going, oh God, what am I going to do now? Yeah, it's become something really pretty special for us, and I think it's just because it it really took us two years. We did a lot of iterations and it was all based on these principles of just trying to maximize something that was going to deliver high, high degree of beer solubility. And so, um, in the, uh, in the vein of what we were talking about earlier, there's some hops in it, in the blend that are, I would consider underutilized utility hops that people might already be ignoring. Right. But things that I think we've, we've utilized in that blend to, uh, to boost sort of the overall, um, capacity of what, what, a what a, single pellet can you know can deliver in beer and so so examples of of those varieties um centennial is one of them that i think is is overlooked uh in the sort of like this blend cryopop gets used in a hazy ipa space all the Mm -hmm. time right which is typically not where you would consider like centennial to be like a main you know (laughs) actor uh but it's but in this case right we're we're deliberately using centennial for a really nice geraniol boost right it's like it delivers a ton of that it has Nice amount of methyl geranate too, and then we're pairing it with other varieties that are, uh, you know, high in other compounds that Centennial is rather deficient in, right? 
so we can kind of Frankenstein together in that way something that is uh, greater than the sum of its parts is kind of the idea. Kind, right? kind of like trying to get a spectrum of, of flavors and aromas. Big time. Yeah. Same way that brewers blend beers, right? Sometimes a single fermentation doesn't yield the complexity that a blended, blended blending multiple batches together right. does, right? And brewers have been doing that for years. Nothing too different in our in our case here. Um, and yeah, I think it's uh, it, yeah, cryopops are really compelling. Uh, I mean, it's I think not only has it been uh, a, a compelling product for people to use, but once they learn about the science, what we're talking about mm-hmm. behind it, it sort of helps change the. Be a, it's a bit of a paradigm shift for people as they start really, really rethinking the way that they that they make beer, that they write recipes, right? So you know, in that vein, I would say I'm pretty much in love with Talus. I think that Talus is a wonderful hop for so many reasons. Talus Equinot is a really unique combination. Equinot's chock full of esters. Talus is full of geraniol. They're pretty different hops. Equinot's kind of big and, and tropical and luscious, and Talus is like bright, bright grapefruit. Um, and the two of them together is just really wonderful. I'm really glad to hear you say that because I have both of those in the freezer, and I can Boom, never really shot. figure out exactly what to do with them, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, Talus Equinot, for sure. Simcoe, I'm a Simcoe homer. I think Simcoe can do almost anything. It's just... Yep. And, but, um, but I think, yeah, Cryopop has been wonderful just because it's allowed... Uh, it's allowed uh, begin. I would say like bre- brewers are just getting into it to produce some to have something that's like reliably going to make lock, stock, and barrel wonderful hoppy beer, and then uh, all the way down to somebody who's just granularly dived into the science of it to use it for specific components. Right, it's high in certain components, and they can use it in that way to really boost up a blend of whatever they're looking for, geranium, so on and so forth. Right, and so I think it has a, a an appeal. It's a tool like anything else, right, and you can use it for different purposes. Um, something like a Swiss Army knife, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys, it seems like, were some of the first ones to really start making blends of hops. You know, I, I remember like the, the original Veterans blend, you know, mm. it just blew me away. And mm-hmm. Some of the Pink Boots blends and stuff like that. Um, and so it's kind of like you've just now taken it a step farther with the cryopop, you know. Uh, it, it's a great thing. So, so, yeah. so is there anything else homebrewers need to know about survivables before we wrap up here? I would say download the chart. Try to internalize it. I don't think that you have to be a chemist. Or I mean, I'm not a chemist. I'm, I was a brewer, but I don't have Pat's level of chemical background. But to me, it's it's abundantly digestible. If you spend a little time, we also have webinars that are that are online that really walk through it in detail. And uh, you know, ultimately, what I would say is just you know use a hop in a place where it's going to have its best chance of being successful. That's 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 the idea of it. It's not necessarily saying that any hop is good or bad. It's saying that there's a place where a hop is going to have its highest impact. Okay. Try to utilize it where it's going to give you the best chance of success and the best beer, right? That's ultimately, I think, the thrust of it all. That's that's a really, really good point because so, so many homebrewers are just used to, like, you know, additions go at this time, this time, this time, and I'll put some of these in there and see what happens and stuff like that. So yeah. the, the chart really helps you figure out what to use when. Mm-hmm. So, so. What we what I really like to see is when you print it off and put it next to your brew house. So <laughs> take a picture and send it to us. I text Pat survivables in the wild all the time. It's, a, it's one of my favorite pastimes. Uh, okay, yeah. man. Next match I make. There you go. <laughs> take a picture next to your kettle with it. Yeah. I promise. I yeah. promise. Yeah. We've been talking to Spencer Tielkemeyer and Pat Jensen today about survivables and hops here at Yakima Chief Hop and Brew School. Guys, thanks so much for getting together and giving us all this great information. Uh, I, I, I tell people oftentimes that 
you know, I, I spent a lot of my early brewing years really getting into the science part of it and everything. But after 25 years, I say, okay, so I've learned the science and come out the other side. You guys are starting to get me excited about the science again. Great to hear. So, Great yeah, Thanks a lot. Very encouraging. Thanks, guys. See Thank you later. You, Thank so you. there you go. And let me tell you, I've made beers using that survivables chart before, and it makes a huge, huge difference in the beer. You can download that booklet from uh, Yakima Chief, and I would advise you to do that if you're into making IPAs. And also, uh, we'll put up a link to the PowerPoint that they presented when they did their presentation at Hoppin' Brew School so that you can get uh, more information than we were able to jam into that interview. But there are some things you can remember. Uh, one of, I'll, I'll just get started on these, Drew, and you can like uh, jump in. Mm-hmm. One of Pat's uh, sayings is, if it ends in een, it doesn't make the scene, uh, referring especially to monoterpenes. Yep. Yeah. So in other words, those all need to go in late in order to, right. in order to be maximized. The, the next one was, if it ends in ol, you might just get it all. And so that's like linalool and geranol. And those are monoterpene alco- uh, alcohols. And the thing I thought was interesting in the discussion was crystal. Bring back more crystal. Yeah, these guys absolutely love crystal hops. And, uh, you know, that was a real revelation for me because I've used them before, but I didn't really know what I was doing with them. So I'm back into the crystal. They also say if it ends in eight, it probably tastes great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, meaning like uh, like esters and ketones, stuff like that. The uh, I forget the exact scientific name for them. Let me see if I have that here in my notes someplace. Uh, yeah, kind of like, uh, methylbutyl isobutyrate, <laughs> which is fruity and apricot uh, isoamyl isobutyrate, which is a fruity tropical fruit flavor. So remember, if it ends in eight, it probably tastes great. And I think we need to talk to Pat because he failed to make one for thiols. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. But it's all uh, new, so you, the rhymes will follow the science. That's right. That's right. Um, I, I also thought it was interesting to see the the sort of confirmation that I mean, well, their rate's a little bit different than the Shellhammer uh, recommendations, but they were talking after you do the conversions from production size uh, down to homebrew size, doing dry hopping somewhere around five to ten ounces per five gallon batch, or if you're uh, overseas and using sensible systems, 140 to 280 grams per 19 liters. Um, and so I think Denning, what the shell hammer rate was like maxing out like six ounces per five gallons. Uh, yeah, around that eight grams per liter. So that, as I recall, comes out to about six ounces per five gallons. Yep. But let me, let me also stress that even though these guys are a little bit higher than what Tom had found, they also were adamant about the, uh, the poor effects of using too much dry hopping. Uh, you know, it's, it's not only a waste that can actually get you diminishing returns. So, and look, if a salesman is saying that, (laughs) if a salesman is telling you, don't use more of my product. Yeah. Uh, Listen to the interview and absorb the information and make your own decisions. That's the way I like to do things. There we go. All right. Let's get out of here. Okay. Time to wrap things up. Take a listen to these messages and we'll be right back. 
Yakima Chief Hops has the tools for your homebrew hop playbook. From classic favorites to the next exciting hop product out of the YCH R&D Lab. Partnering with growers and brewers to create a robust hop supply chain from propagation to pint, YCH is the source for exciting experimental hop varieties. Explore new flavors and aromas with HBC 586, which provides an immense fruit medley aroma including mango, citrus, and herbal notes. Get creative with HBC 630, overflowing with tropical citrus flavors that can only be described as fruity and fortified with sophisticated woody notes. Or discover new takes on your favorite recipes with HBC 638, brimming with citrus and tropical aromas with hints of sweet aromatic, herbal, and stone fruit. Learn more at yakimachief.com. The Brew Deck Podcast features exclusive interviews with your favorite brewers and suppliers. Each episode highlights new trends and brewing tips from leaders in the industry to inspire your next brew. Listen to the Brew Deck Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. It's time to wrap things up and get out of here, and we're going to start off with a question that came in. Yep, and I'm sorry I lost the name on this text message. I'll be better about this in the, in the future. Actually, I'm not even sure there's yeah. a name attached to it. But uh, this one's for you, Denny. I recently brewed a version of Denny's Bourbon Vanilla Imperial Porter. It came out at 10.8% ABV and tastes delicious. I was hoping to bottle it off the keg into bombers for Christmas gifts, but I can't get it to carbonate. It's been on a serving pressure for three weeks, and I bumped it up to 30 pounds a couple days ago, but it's still flat. The keg is holding pressure. There are no leaks. I put a freshly filled at the homebrew shop bottle of CO2 on it. It's 40 degrees Fahrenheit in the kegerator. I don't understand. I've never had a beer refuse to carbonate. Can you think of anything that might be causing this? Boy, I wish I could. People ask me this all the time. And I'm afraid I don't have an answer because I've never really had a problem with it. Uh, admittedly, I bottle more than uh, than I keg for this beer because I give it away. Uh, but I have never had a problem getting it to carbonate in either the bottle or the keg. Uh, I'm not going to tell you you're doing something wrong. Maybe I'm doing something wrong, and that's why it works for me. But I'm afraid that I really can't help you out here. Uh, you know, you, I've, everybody knows the higher alcohol beers can be more difficult to carbonate. But other than that, Naturally. there's nothing in... Yeah, right. But, I mean, he's kegging it, right? Yep, kegging with CO2. And, and that's the reason why I, the only thing I can think is it's something mechanical. Because You know, I, I would think so. I mean, I would think so, except that I get this from other people also. And I just don't know. So if anybody has any ideas other than the alcohol level, write it and let us know. Yeah, my 
my engineer brain keeps saying that if something seems improbable, uh, let's look at the first uh, the first bit of it, which is the mechanics. You know, is the yeah. are the kegs overfilled? Are the you know what 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 does that look like? You know, are we if you agitated it, would you get any carbonation dissolvent? Because I mean, look, Henry's gas law is a thing. It's a law, <laughs> you know, so there, there's nothing magical about a beer that would say, no, you can't come in here, CO2. It's an aqueous solution. Hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, uh, that's what I would say, man. I can't, I can't, don't really have a good answer for it. So uh, we're going to go to the crowd. Uh, if any of you people out there have an idea about what might be causing it, uh, let us know. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. All right, and finally, to get us out of here, a quick tip and something other. Denny, you've got the quick tip. My quick tip is homebrew experiments are only experiments in that they provide you with a data point. The real science part comes from recreating that experiment, which means it's up to you to do it. Uh, we started this podcast with the idea that we were going to be doing experiments, getting people to do experiments for us. And that's that's really great. By getting a bunch of people to do it, you at least come a little bit closer to science. But remember that any experiment you read about, unless it's been replicated and verified by a number of people, is no more than a data point that you should try for yourself and see how it works for you. Uh, I guess you could say science is personal, huh? Everything's personal, just like everything is politics. <laughs> All right. Well, I, well, no, but I mean, seriously, you know, if we stop when we think about some of the things that we know, right? Big old quotation marks around what we know. Um, things like the the Tenseth formula. We know now, in talking with uh, Tenseth, that, oh, yeah, that only really worked for his system with whole pellets and everything else as an approximation. Uh, right. Yeah, it, it works like that with a lot of other beer things. So don't just take things that we say, don't take the things that other people say as the gospel truth of all time and space when it comes to the beer stuff. You do still got to try it out. After all, there aren't very many beer laws. Right. Yep. All right. And then finally, something other than beer, because, of course, life is not just about beer. It's always about something else. And I'm going to go back for the audio book of the month type of idea, because uh, when I'm doing the dishes or I'm walking the dogs or something, a lot of times I'm listening to an audio book. And on Audible, they, they have actually some really good science fiction slash fantasy type things that uh, have been made as audible exclusives. And this may only be for people from the Orlando area, but there is a book by an author, Alexander C. Kane. It's actually a two book series right now. Uh, the first book in the series is called uh, Orlando people. And I think the other one was a uh, Dade County death cruise. Uh, and the whole thing is a science fiction story that starts with, about 10,000 kids being born in the Orlando area sometime in 1983 and 1984, who, when they turned six, became telekinetic. And they're called Orlando people. And the whole book is about, you know, the world in which they live and this sort of conspiracy that's out there that may or may not be trying to eliminate them. And, you know, the audiobook is fun. There's a great, very no-nonsense uh, FBI character in there who is completely deadpan and absolutely makes a wonderful foil to the main character. And of course, me being from the Orlando area, 
I really have to laugh because the very first scene in the book takes place in the Altamont Springs Mall, where I spent part of my childhood. So, <laughs> Your misspent youth, huh? Yeah, well, I didn't have a lot of money to spend, so I wasn't misspending a lot. Um, but yeah, it, it takes place around a lot of things that I know and love in Orlando, like the uh, eyesore on the I-4, which has apparently finally been completed. Uh, so yeah, if you're from Orlando or you just want to like hear some really fun and light and frothy sort of science fiction, yes, there's murder and death involved, but hey, it's a story. Orlando People by Alexander C. Kane, available streaming from Audible. Okay, sounds cool, but that's enough of that. Let's get out of here. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew is on the uh, homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. You can find me hanging out on a bunch of different forums, uh, mainly the AHA discussion forum, uh, the beer garden at the brew house, and uh, especially on Facebook. So if you want to get in touch with us and ask a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And we do have a phone number where you can leave us a voicemail or send us a text. It's 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253 for those of you who don't spell. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.